0: Thanks for joining us today at Prairie View. Um, Thanks for joining us at the October bonfire last night. Uh, Those of you who were there um, heard there was a lot of fun, a lot of great times, a lot of good food. Uh, As those of you who attended might know, uh, Olivia and the kids and I were not there. Um, We've had some illness going on through our household this week, uh, myself included. And none of us are contagious, so that's the good news. Um, But the bad news is that we couldn't be there last night. Um, We were just all... Tired, exhausted, wiped out, and if you know me, um, it very much goes against my nature for something to be happening at Prairie View, and me not be there. Uh, so I was kind of sitting on the couch, chomping at the bit. Um, but we have other people here who do a really great job—people like Linda and Rick and Mark and Nancy—and so I'm very grateful for all of them. Uh, and of course, I would ask that you pray for our families as we try to get over all this stuff that we're dealing with. So. Last week, we started a new sermon series looking at what the Bible says about wealth, and that includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. So last Sunday, we focused primarily on the goodness of wealth In the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam and Eve everything they needed and then some. If nothing else, one can conclude that in a perfect world, a sinless world, the people that God created would suffer no want. Material and financial wealth can be a good gift, even a blessing from God himself. And that good gift can allow us to serve him and serve others in some unique and very powerful ways. However, as we mentioned, while wealth is a good thing, wealth is not the highest good. God's primary concern is not for you to have money. God's primary concern is not for you to have stuff. God's primary concern is for you to have him. And unfortunately, like every good gift of God, sinful people like us have a knack for abusing, corrupting and tainting the gift of wealth. Because while wealth may not be thoroughly sinful, we humans are. Thus, it would be incredibly foolish. It would be arrogant to talk about the goodness of wealth while ignoring the dangers that wealth can pose to sinners like us. So this morning, we're going to spend a lot of time in Scripture because God has a lot to say about the temptations that come along with wealth. And God can say this stuff far better than you or I can. Passage after passage in both the Old Testament and the New Testament make very clear the harm that can come when sinners like us get a hold of wealth. So we're going to focus on three primary temptations that we find ourselves wrestling with when it comes to wealth. First, the temptation of idolatry. Second, the temptation of greed. And third, the temptation to believe that we're self-sufficient. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 2. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide and take one of those home with you if you don't own a Bible. But before we read in Exodus 20, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all the ways that you've blessed us. Um, As we mentioned last week, a high, high, high majority of us uh, living in America today, sitting in this room, um, would be considered very, very wealthy uh, by most worldwide standards. And so, Father, I pray that as people who have been incredibly gifted, uh, that we would also see the great responsibility we have to use our wealth, use our finances in ways that honor you, that serve the individuals around us, and that ultimately contribute to The common good ultimately contribute to human beings created in your image, best flourishing. So Father, as we come to your word this morning, again, we're going to be confronted with things that might challenge us, things that might encourage us, things that might even convict us. But I pray that you would give us hearts and minds that are open to what it is your word has to say. I pray that we would come to your word humbly this morning and that we would continue to come to you, not Under some foolish understanding of our own merits, of our own goodness, but that we would come to you knowing that you hear us, that you listen to us, and that you speak to us through your word, purely because of your grace. Thank you for your son who died for us, his broken body, his shed blood that we just celebrated at communion. I pray that we would never, ever forget that, that we would remember it not just on Sunday mornings, but Monday through Saturday as well. We pray for the request in our bulletin. We pray for the request on our prayer board out in the lobby. Watch over those people, those things, those concerns. You know who they are and you know what they are and you know what to do to best address them. So, Father, watch over us. Thank you for this morning we have together. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. Or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 15 You shall not steal. Verse 17 You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey. Or anything that is your neighbor's. We just read four of the Ten Commandments, all of which have some ramification, some relevance to our discussion of wealth. As God frees his people from slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses, many of these people had never really heard God before. For many of these people, God was some old story from way back in Abraham's day that they weren't even sure was really even true. And so God introduces himself to his people. God tells his people who he is. God shows his people what matters to him by giving them his law. And in these Ten Commandments, 40% of them have something to do with wealth. Consider that first commandment, the warning against idolatry. God knew the Israelites would find it all too easy to worship false gods instead of worshiping him. Now, you think about it. For many people today, the temptation might not be to worship a statue. It might not be to worship some foreign or exotic deity. But instead, we find ourselves tempted to worship our wealth, worship our money, worship our stuff. In the words of Martin Luther, that to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. That's Martin Luther's definition of idolatry. That thing that your heart clings to, that thing that your heart entrusts itself to, that is your God. His words seem to echo the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter six, verse twenty one. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The temptation to worship wealth is a strong temptation for us today. But what about that next commandment, the commandment about the Sabbath, verses 8 through 11? What does the Sabbath have to do with wealth? Well, how many of us are tempted to never rest? Tempted to work ourselves to death, all in the name of greed. All in the name of getting more money, in the name of getting more stuff, all for the goal of becoming self-sufficient. We don't have time to rest. I mean, time is money, right? Well, in commanding his people in the Old Testament to rest, God is forcing them to learn how to trust. And if we are completely unwilling to rest from our pursuit for more money, our pursuit for more stuff, It may expose an unwillingness to trust God's provision. That third commandment we looked at, commandment number eight, verse 15, the commandment against stealing. Now, this one's relatively straightforward, isn't it? When wealth becomes your idol, the thing that your heart desires, the thing that your heart worships, you may do things to acquire it that you once thought unthinkable. And what about that final commandment, commandment number ten? The commandment against coveting. When wealth is our idol, there's no such thing as contentment. Because there's no such thing as too much money. We may even get to the point that we're not just discontent with the things that we have. We're not just discontent with the size of our bank account. But we're even discontent with God himself. That's just in the Ten Commandments. That is early on. But the same theme continues throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Look at Leviticus chapter 19, starting in verse nine. God says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. God's teaching the Israelites two separate lessons in that commandment. Lesson number one, care for the poor. Care for those who have less than you. Lesson number two, learn not to be greedy. Learn that you don't have to have every single thing that you lay your eyes on. Even the thing that you could argue is rightfully yours to begin with. There's the lesson against greed. Greed. And there's the lesson to care for the poor. Deuteronomy, chapter six, starting in verse 12, we mentioned this passage last week. This is the passage where God tells the Israelites about all the wealth they're about to inherit. They're about to enter the promised land. And when they enter that promised land, they're going to get houses and cities and walls that they didn't build. They're going to get gardens and vineyards that they didn't plant. They're going to have more wealth than any of them have ever seen before. But look at the warning that he issues to them in verse 12. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. It seems as though the Israelites were going to be tempted, tempted to forget God. They would have everything they need, everything they'd want, and they could kind of just put God on the back burner, right? Maybe they'd cry out to him when things got bad, but as long as things are good, eh, we don't have to worry about God so much. The Ten Commandments, the book of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all speak consistently about wealth. Over and over again, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament law, God commands his people to worship him, not to worship their wealth. He reminds them not to give in to that seductive power of greed. He reminds them that no matter how much wealth they acquire, they're not nearly as self-sufficient as they think they are. So why does God hit on this topic so much? Why does he hit on it over and over and over again, just in the first few books of the Bible? It's because God knows exactly how strong these temptations will be. And we would do well to recognize that we're not above them. These three main temptations, idolatry, greed, and self-sufficiency. All three temptations directly oppose the character of God They oppose the law that he gave his people in the Old Testament, and they oppose his desire for human flourishing. But it's not just that much in the Old Testament that talks about it. There's a lot more in the Old Testament as well. Consider some of the books of wisdom, books like Proverbs chapter 23, verses four and five. In that chapter, we read, do not toil to acquire wealth, be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. If we remember Martin Luther's definition of an idol, that thing to which your heart clings and entrusts itself to. Sounds like that's what the Proverbs author is getting at. He seems to be saying not to give your heart to the worship of wealth, because eventually it'll be gone. One way or another. Maybe you'll lose it in this life through your own poor decisions or through things outside of your control. Or worst case scenario, you'll realize too late that you can't take your wealth with you in eternity. So in other words, your wealth simply isn't worth worshipping. Another passage, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. If Proverbs 23 spoke to that temptation of idolatry, Perhaps Proverbs 30 speaks to that temptation of greed. I mean, think about it. The author of this proverb is making the exact opposite request that a greedy person would make. A greedy person is someone who never stops seeking more wealth. And yet this author asked that God not give him too much wealth. In the words of theologians Stanley Hauerwass and Will Willimon, the greedy are insatiable and can never be content. Having much, they fear the loss of what they have and think the only way to protect what they have is to have more. Thus, they are tormented and unable to enjoy what they have. Wealth turns out to be just another name for loneliness. The greedy, in short, simply cannot learn to rest easy. In God's good creation. The author of Proverbs makes it clear. Idolatry. Greed. They are not the marks of wisdom. And finally, Proverbs 18, verse 11. A rich man's wealth is a strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. There's great wisdom and understanding that no matter how much wealth we acquire... No matter how much money you make, we are not self-sufficient. We are not independent. We are not autonomous from God. Because wealth cannot protect us from everything. And wealth cannot give us everything we need. And no matter how much money we have, no matter how much stuff we get... We will never reach the point of no longer needing God. We will never reach that point. But it's not just the law. It's not just books of wisdom. We even see it in the prophets. Isaiah chapter two, verses six through eight. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners their, hand is fi- their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. In the Old Testament, it seems as though that the more wealth the Israelites acquired, the richer they got... The idolatry went right along with it. It became much easier to abandon God when they had more stuff. Consider Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 29. The people of the land have practiced practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. Remember Leviticus chapter 19, 9 and 10, the part about not plowing all of your fields all the way up to the edge. That way, some of those widows, some of those orphans, some of those sojourners could come and eat from the edge of your property. What appears the Israelites didn't obey that rule. They didn't care about the widow. They didn't care about the sojourner. In fact, they even oppressed them and extorted against them. The Israelites at one time probably thought that they would never disobey God in that way. But greed has a way of doing that. Greed has a way of making us do things that we once thought unthinkable. It's true of the Israelites, and it can very much be true of us as well. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 18. The prophet says, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Again, we are not as self-sufficient as we think we are. Our wealth cannot give us everything we need and our wealth cannot protect us from everything we think it can protect us from. Now you put that all together and the Old Testament is pretty consistent. Wealth is a good gift of God, but in the hands of sinners it poses great temptation. And again, we would be naive to suggest that we're somehow above those temptations of idolatry, greed, and self-sufficiency. But it's not just the Old Testament. The New Testament continues the same message. Look at some of the words of Jesus. In the parable, parable of the sower, Jesus says that the seed sown among thorns... The seed that grew up but was eventually choked out by those thorns, that seed is like those people who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. When someone hears the gospel, they are being forced to re examine where their allegiances lie. Do they align with the world? Or do they align with God and his son, Jesus Christ? And the message that Jesus is getting at in the parable of the sower is that many people will choose to align with the world, to align with the deceitfulness of riches, rather than to declare their allegiance to Christ. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, we read of a man who let greed dominate his entire existence, neglected the poor, sitting literally on his doorstep, and he was ultimately punished for it. In Jesus' parable of the rich fool, we see a man who had so much wealth that he didn't even have enough room to store all of it. But just when he thinks that he no longer has a care in the world, he can finally rest easy. He can finally relax. He's finally self-sufficient. Well, that's the moment when the man dies and he's forced to answer to God for his arrogance. But it's not just the words of Jesus. One more passage. First Timothy, chapter six, starting in verse six. Paul writes, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. That some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Last week we discussed where, just a few verses later, Paul clearly acknowledges that one can be wealthy and Christian at the same time. That's true. But that doesn't mean that Paul is unaware of wealth's dangers. That's why he calls it a temptation, he calls it a snare. It can lead to senseless and harmless desires. It can lead to ruin and destruction. It's a root of all kinds of evils. In other words, it can be a good gift of God, but it can also be a temptation that will chew you up and spit you out if you're not careful. Now, you put that all together, and that's a lot of scripture, all seemingly saying pretty much the same thing. It's a lot to take in all in one sitting. Scripture from the law, wisdom, the prophets, Jesus, Paul, all that together. The point is that there's really no way around what the scripture says about wealth, the good and the bad. But here's the thing. It's one thing for us to examine the Bible. That can be good. That can be helpful. That can be valuable. That's what we've done Most of our time this morning so far. But allow me to suggest that we shouldn't just be content to examine the Bible. We also must allow the Bible to examine us. Because in those moments, we might discover that we're more susceptible to these temptations than we like to believe. When we allow the Bible to examine us. We'll discover that we're really good at convincing ourselves that wealth is not an idol for us. It might be for someone else, but surely not for me. And yet the average American Christian only gives around 2.4% of their wealth to charitable organizations. That's compared to around 2.1% of non-Christians. In other words, we love our money just about as much As those people who don't worship God at all. Many times, there is not a significant difference between our love of money and the love of money that we see in people who don't even know Christ. And before you think to yourself that, well, if I just had more money to give, then I might be more generous. That's the solution. Well, even then, it's been proven time and time again that, on average, Americans with lower incomes give more of their earnings proportionally than those with higher incomes. Wealth is more of an idol for the average American Christian than we would often like to admit. And when we allow the Bible to examine us, we'll also find that we're quite good at finding ways to justify not just idolatry, but to justify greed. Again, the same theologians we mentioned earlier, Hauerwas and Willimon, they write, the problem is that in the world in which we live, we have learned to call greed ambition or providing for my family. We have learned to call greed getting ahead. We have learned to call greed working for a better life. We have learned to call greed pleasure. As John Calvin might put it, We have managed to blacken our mirrors so that we can no longer see ourselves. Not only do we worship our wealth more than we'd like to admit, we're often more greedy than we'd like to admit. And of course, the goal of self-sufficiency is something that we find ourselves continually striving for. We work so hard to make sure that we have everything under control, that we make the best possible decisions with our money that we possibly can, that we consider every single option so that no one day we'll be able to rest, one day we'll be able to relax, one day we'll be able to sleep easy, just like that rich fool that Jesus talked about, without a care in the world. We long for the day when we'll be self-sufficient. And if we're really honest about it, we want to have so much wealth in our control, so much money in our bank accounts, that we will never even have to pray. We want to have so much money that we would never have to sink to the level of praying about it. I think it's easy to see that we are more tempted to worship our wealth more tempted to become greedy for wealth, and more tempted to fool ourselves into thinking that we're self-sufficient than we often like to admit. But not only that, you combine all of these truths with the world that we live in, and it doesn't make it any easier to avoid those temptations. You live in an up-and-coming white-collar suburb like Fishers or Noblesville or Carmel, And we're constantly tempted to keep up with the Joneses. In a world of social media, we're constantly tempted to flaunt our wealth so that people will think we have the perfect life. And we tell ourselves it's perfectly fine, so long as we mention God every once in a while. These temptations are absolutely challenges for us. These aren't just things that we know in our heads. They're sins that we've all committed in our words in our deeds, in our hearts. So you look at all this, and it sounds pretty doom and gloom. But what is the solution for these sins that so often entangle us? What possible answer is there? Well, it's the same solution for all the other sins that we're guilty of. The answer, as always, is Christ. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Verse nine, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. When Paul says that Jesus became poor, he doesn't mean that Jesus gave up financial or material wealth to save us. He gave up something far, far greater. He left the presence of his father, perpetual worship to live, die and rise all for the sake of idolatrous, greedy and supposedly self-sufficient sinners like us. You know, we all walk in here this morning as people who wrestle with these temptations. We should all admit that. And to be honest, we're still going to wrestle with them even as we leave. But one thing we can do is that we can thank God for a savior who is so much like us in one way, a savior who's fully human, but also so much unlike us in other ways, fully God, sinless. We can thank God for a savior who is tempted by Satan to abandon his father for wealth and power, and yet he refused We can thank God for a savior who is not greedy for wealth, but generous even with his own life. We can thank God for a savior who offered himself as the all-sufficient sacrifice for broken, needy, helpless, less than self-sufficient sinners. So as we leave here this morning, we must be honest about these temptations. We mustn't fool ourselves into thinking that we're above them that they aren't temptations for us. But we can also leave here knowing that we have a Savior who did not give in to these temptations the way we so often do. We have a Savior who was a sufficient sacrifice for insufficient people. We have a Savior who was not idolatrous, who was not greedy, and actually was an all-sufficient sacrifice once and for all. Past, present, and future. So as we leave here, I pray that we'd be thankful for our wealth. Again, it can be a wonderful gift of God, like we discussed last week. But may we also remember that it is not the highest good. And may we be vigilant against the temptations that it poses to us. And we constantly remind ourselves that we have an inheritance far greater than Than any inheritance that worldly wealth or worldly stuff can provide. We have an inheritance of salvation. And I pray that that is where our hearts would lie. And that we would lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as sinners, we come to you as broken people, people with issues, people with streaks of rebellion, people who are all too often disobedient, all too often willfully ignorant. And yet we come to you and you listen to us because of what your son did for us. In spite of all those things, you still call us sons, you still call us daughters. We are not your enemies, but rather we can call you a friend. We can call you father. And for that, we are incredibly grateful. So as we leave this place into a world where we get very mixed messages about what things are worthy of our worship, what things we should strive for, the things that we should set our hearts on, I pray that we would continue to look to your word. I pray that we would be reminded that you and you alone deserve our worship. I pray that we would avoid that seductive power of greed. And I pray that you would give us the humility to remember that we are not self-sufficient. That we are in such desperate need of you, your grace, your provision. We need you to sustain us. We need your help to guard our hearts and guard our minds against the temptations that wealth and everything else in this world can throw at us. And, Father, we leave here being reminded of your grace, being reminded as we took communion that your body was broken. Your son's blood was shed for the sake of sinners like us. Father, we love you. We praise you. Help us to love the right things and worship you alone in this week ahead. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have not yet made that decision to trust and follow Christ as your Lord and Savior, I hope that you talk to one of our elders right now. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to answer your questions, happy to pray with you. If you're in that situation in life where you've been chasing after money you've been chasing after stuff for a long time and it's just not filling the hole that you feel in your heart now would be a great opportunity to ask one of our elders about christ if you have sin that you need to repent of talk to one of our elders if you have questions or prayers about something totally unrelated to today's sermon you can do that as well now, before we officially close uh, with one final song, which, again, we're very grateful for our guests who are here uh, for joining us for worship. But before we close, I do want to call one person up, and that is a new member of our church. So at this time, I'm going to call Jeanette McLaughlin up here. We can stand in front of the stage. We don't have to be on the stage. Many of you already may know Jeanette. Jeanette's been coming to our church for, gosh, probably seven or eight months. Seven or eight months. And uh, the way I describe Jeanette to people is Jeanette is one of those women that every church should have. And every church should have like 10 of them or 20 of them or 30 of them. Uh, Jeanette is one of the kindest, sweetest uh, women that you'll ever meet in your life. And... Uh, just recently, uh, within the last couple of weeks, uh, she made the decision to become a member of Prairie View Christian Church. Uh, and so one of the elders and I met with Jeanette and we got to know her better and asked her some questions. And she asked us some questions and and we agreed that membership seemed like a good step forward for her. So we want to welcome Jeanette uh, and encourage you to say hi to Jeanette uh, as you leave this morning. But I am going to ask Jeanette to repeat a short confession of faith and then we'll close with our final song. So, Jeanette, can you repeat after me, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of the Living God. And I trust him as my Lord and Savior. All right, thank you. Again, say hello to Jeanette as you leave. Uh, We hope you have a great Sunday, and thanks for joining us this morning.